it away, I try to get it back, and I pull it back in. We used to put a motorcycle helmet on, so a guy would wear a motorcycle helmet and boxing gloves, and he would attack you, and we would try to stop that and just hit that motorcycle helmet with like a straight blast chain punches and headbutt it and elbow it, and that's how we trained. We're teaching actually, which nobody really talks about, we're actually teaching timing. <laughs> You're right, we're actually understanding when to do this. It doesn't say that. You, you see knee slide, leg drag, uh, Toriando, whatever. You don't see staying on top, balance, not getting knocked over. You don't see that. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Elbows Type Podcast. It's your host, Travis. Today, I have a, another great ecological guy on the podcast, Mr. Rob Cole. Rob, how are you doing today? Good, Travis. How are you doing? Good to be on. I, I, I am doing fantastic. A lot better now that I get to talk some more ecological with some with a, a knowledgeable person like yourself. Um, and, but before we jump into that part of the conversation, uh, to give context of who you are, uh, we kind of alluded, talked about it right before press and record. But it, for people at home, who are you, and how long have you been in jujitsu? And you know, kind of like what your story is. Um, I've been training martial arts for over thirty years now. You know, went through the karate, taekwondo type beginnings. You know, uh, seen Van Dam, and I'm like, okay, I want to do that. <laughs> I just want to do high kicks and splits, and and that's real fighting. And then uh, got into, you know, was staying into that. And then I seen the UFC in 1993. I think I was uh, 18 years old. I think I just got my black belt in karate, and I was like, wow, I need to start doing that type of stuff. This grappling stuff seems to be, <laughs> it works really well. So yeah, I got into Jeet Kune Do concepts, which was uh Bruce Lee's uh, fighting style. So they were very eclectic of grabbing different things. So we used to just grab some mats and just grapple on the mats. And we didn't really know what we were doing. I would buy like uh, Henzo Gracie, Craig Krukup VHS tapes, not to date myself yeah. that much, but those are my first. I used to, you know, buy the tapes off the back of, uh, you know, Black Belt Magazine and all that stuff, Panther Productions. And there would be some of these grappling videos would come up and we would just try to train them, you know, on the mats and just kind of figure it out. And cause there was no jujitsu really in Connecticut at the time. I think there might've been a blue belt in New York or, or who would come from New York. Maybe Henzo was out there already. And then I moved out to California and I started training with uh, Frank Shamrock when he was just winning the UFC title. I remember seeing him when he was a pancreas uh, champion, him and Ken. So I went out to train in San Jose at AKA American Cooks kickboxing academy where frank was and i trained under him for what five or six years and i used to instruct out of him i became a black shirt under him we used to have the t-shirt ranks at the time and then so i was a coach for uh for his for, with his team did a little mma stuff like that and then was a no-gi guy did not like the gi every time i put it on i thought it was the worst thing ever i thought it was cheating <laughs> i'm like stop grabbing me this is ridiculous and then then I moved cross country a couple times, tried to do the gi every now and then, never liked it. And then when I got back to Connecticut, uh, I got back into the gi and said, well, let me kind of go. Well, actually then had a pit stop of doing some 10th planet stuff. I got my purple belt from Eddie Bravo. And then after wasn't doing that, then I finally decided I'm going to do the gi. And I just would play spider and lasso and Baron Bolo's do. I was like, I'm going to do only gi techniques. I'm done with the no gi for now. I want to learn this gi stuff. And then went through the ranks like that. And then now I do both, but I'm mainly mostly no gi now over the years. But I, I still appreciate the gi game and understand what that game is. I wanted to put my time into that to just go through the levels 
that way. So basically karate, Jeet Kune Do, stick fighting, MMA, no gi, gi, <laughs> no gi again, wrestling, all that type of stuff. Pretty much everything. Everything. What was, what was, what was like one thing that kind of stuck with you through all of these martial arts that you noticed uh, were like a common factor? Because I can't, I can't imagine all of these are com- like completely black and white different. I'm sure there's got to be something in each one of them that kind of translated to the next. Um, they all, and it's like I, after I started getting into MMA and jujitsu and grappling, I'm like, oh man, I wasted all that time doing karate and all. This. But no, that stuff still. I had the flexibility and the mobility, you know, maybe some speed, some different things. And I would use that with this. Obviously, you don't go into an MMA fight doing Taekwondo as much, especially back in the late 90s. But you do have – and then you would started seeing, oh, if you couldn't grapple, if you couldn't – you know, you could now use your stand-up. But you could never use your stand-up back in the day if you didn't know how to grapple. It just would that – if you watched early UFCs, that's what happened. Every guy from karate or boxing or whatever, they just got taken down and beaten. It was pretty much – an easy win for any grappler. So, and then as people started understanding, hey, I'm not going to let you take me down, now the striking opened up. And then I've seen all the the different ways in MMA, how it became, you know, specialist, and then it became more generalist. And just, you know, Frank was one of the original who kind of had striking, grappling, wrestling. He kind of had it all. And then you had guys like, you know, when George St. Pierre finally just took it to that next, next level. So all these different evolutions. And as long as you, you know, with those martial arts, the Taekwondo, the Jeet Kune Do, the, the thing that always made sense to it, though, was you had to train it realistically. Like I came from, I was lucky. I came from a karate background and I used to do all the kata and all that stuff. But when we sparred, we sparred. <laughs> like I was a teenager fighting, you know, the 20 year olds and the 30 year olds that are our local gym and we just, you know, you, if you train hard, you're going to, you're going to get some good stuff out of it, you know? And then that's, that's kind of, I always seen through the years, even when I was doing the Jeet Kune Do stuff, I always tell people we used to put a motorcycle helmet on. So a guy would wear a motorcycle helmet and boxing gloves and he would attack you. And we would try to stop that and just hit that motorcycle helmet with like a straight blast chain punches and headbutt it and elbow it. And that's how we trained. And, you know, might not be the smartest way to train, but we're talking, you know, late 90s, <laughs> you know, we had a lot, you know, but that brought up the realism. And that's how we, that was Bruce Lee's idea also, you know, it has to be trained real. It has to be live. It can't just be this cod all the time. And then, and in jujitsu, the reason it's always worked since the early days is it was trained real. We have sparring. We're not, you know, we have real life sparring. And then that's just how, how the evolution of all this has come together. You know, and now we see 30 years later from the UFC how things have changed, you know. And now the jiu-jitsu guy who dominated back then, they can't get anybody to the ground, they're not going to win. They can't strike, they're not going to win, you know. So it's uh, it's all part of it, and it's beautiful to see the evolution change from the 60s, 70s martial arts movies where you thought this is the way to fight to once realism was at it, what things change. So realism is always that that pressure testing or that – thing that makes the martial art what it is so it's it's funny that you mentioned you know back in the day how it was we we mentioned this earlier too like everything's cyclical right like it all comes back around when ufc first started it was you know 100 percent specialists in every aspect right and then it got more into like a george st pierre who was a good striker awesome wrestler right had had everything many would consider the goat and now it's kind of going back to 
specialist with a little bit of generalist in my eyes, right? Because if you look at someone like Israel Adesanya, uh, uh, Thompson, uh, right? We have these these people that are high-level strikers, uh, Alex Pereira, right? Like they're high-level strikers. Their ground game's not the best, right? But they're able to stop a takedown or get back from their feet. Uh, but they definitely, if they were to go against a grappler, like a hundred, like a sp- grappling specialist, then, you know, they get, they get washed. And it's cool to see how uh, it's kind of coming back around that a lot of people are, they're, they're a heavy striker, they're specialists in striking, but they have a little bit of everything else just in case, you know what oh, I mean? And, and I, I think uh, the big thing for jujitsu now is uh, people, People are trying different things, which kind of leads to, you know, uh, ecological dynamics on how it's so popular now. And when you look back at your training back in the day, do you ever see now that you're so like now that, you know, you know so much about it? Do you ever see little aspects of, you know, ecological dynamics in your prior training? Yeah, it's uh even back when I was training with Frank in uh, late 90s, early 2000s, we used to play a lot of games. We had the, mm. the leg game. We would start holding each other's legs like how, the old pancreas where it's kind of like that double ankle lock situation. And we would start from there. We still did our drills and all that other stuff. But Frank was a good uh, inspiration because he was more about movement. Like he was he cared about technique and wanted it, but he wanted movement to be part of it because he was in a live fight sport. So we would just come in sometimes and just, he'd be like, hey, let's just try this. Or he was one of the first people that created uh, walking up the cage, the cage walk, you know, putting the back and shimmying up. So mm-hmm. what did he do? He didn't come up with a technique. He put himself against the wall. He had the best wrestlers in the gym at AKA, guys coming from Stanford and different groups around, good wrestlers and grapplers, try to hold him down. And could he get up off his back? You know, then you've refined some stuff and this and that, but everything was, we had a lot of game-based training. We didn't know the ecological dynamics behind it at the time, but we still did our drills and, you know, things that would, you know, I wouldn't really do as much nowadays since I've been getting deeper into this, but there was always, but we used to roll a lot. We used to spar a lot, roll a lot, and just, you know, yeah, you, you had to be tough in that aspect. You had to you had to roll a lot and understand what it was. And we rolled like you know knee on neck and neck cranks, everything Ooh. stuff. I yeah, stuff I wouldn't do as much nowadays because longevity and you don't really need to do that to your training partners. But we didn't really know what we were. <laughs> we were just training. We were training fighters and people who had to get in a cage when it was called NHB, no holds barred. It wasn't called MMA. That was just kind of starting. I, I came up in. It was no holes barred. That's what it was. And so we had to train that way. And then over the years, as I've done different things or I've taught, you know, I everywhere I've ever gone, I've always ended up teaching somehow, you know, just, just part of it. And I would always try to come up with these little games or put little re- constraints on things, things I didn't know what I'm doing now, but I was doing it back then. You could retain guard, but you can't use any grips. You can't do this. And you had all these scrambles and, and stuff like that. So I've seen it throughout the years. And then the defensive jujitsu side, how we train it is game-like, even before we understood what the ecological approach was, because you can't really train defense with repetition. You know, it's not like, stop the collar, stop the collar. Like, who would do that? That's <laughs> <laughs> you need somebody pulling on your collar, trying to choke you to understand what's going on. So I've seen these little paths and 
and breadcrumbs throughout the years. And then when the whole ecological stuff started coming out and I started diving in, diving in deeper, I was already kind of doing it on my own. And now I actually, oh, okay, this is why. Oh, let me go deeper in that. And now I, now I can start evolving even more in my training and how I coach. So, and I'm still learning. I'm, I'm not an expert on this. So I don't, I just keep, keep trying to absorb more trial and error. I may mess up. I may not. I, and I just kind of see what works and just keep, keep progressing forward with it. You know, one of the common critiques is to, you know, ecological uh, or eco D, I guess I'll start calling it. So I don't have to keep saying the name over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> but or constraints, whatever you say, or I, constraints, it, it yeah. doesn't matter. I don't, you know, one, one of the most common critiques I hear, and I'm not a hundred percent ecological. I tell people all the time. I just think for my point in my life right now, it is probably the best way for me to train and benefit the most from my time. Right. I just feel like when I go in, if I'm playing games, actively doing jujitsu for my one hour a day, twice a week, I feel like that's going to give me the most, the most benefit for my time. Right. But one common critique that we often hear is it's just positional sparring. It's just positional sparring. We've been doing this forever with positional sparring or situational sparring. In your eyes, what is the biggest difference between situational slash positional sparring and constraints-led approach under the ecological uh, umbrella? Well, yeah. You, if you look at it and you just go, oh, wow, they're just positional sparring, right? That, so it, it seems like that. But what, is, but what led you to that positional sparring? That's, so if you already did your – you drilled your technique, you did this, and now you put these people in positional sparring, what are they going to use? They're going to use what they kind of already know what they've been drilling, what they kind of already built up to that point. Like I think uh, I think a lot of people when they watch training or they critique classes, they look at them as a one class and they go, well, what do we learn in that one class? I taught you a, a, a leg drag. I taught you a this, a cross collar choke. They taught you that. And then you're doing your positional sparring and you're like, see, now they're using it in positional sparring. Where our approach or, you know, the, the overall approach here is, we're cutting out the warm-up step. We're cutting out the technical uh, breakdown of the step, the drilling of it. And we're saying, okay, we're going to put you in these specific scenarios. They could be very broad or they could be tighter. And then we're just giving you the task and the goal of the game. So it may look like positional sparring, but in general standard positional sparring, I've been in a lot of gyms, you're kind of doing what you already know. It's not the learning time. It's the time to apply it. Where this is actually, uh, this is actually the learning phase of what we're looking for. If you could tell the distinction, I think that's where people lose a little bit. A lot of the, it's very easy to listen to a sound clip of Greg or whoever saying and go up. Oh, it's just positional sparring. We've been doing that forever. No, but we're using that constrained environment throughout the whole class, throughout the weeks, throughout the months, throughout the, year years for greg whatever and then that's going to be where we're learning i think i was on uh i was on chris Payne's podcast when i first thought of this kind of how i see the hierarchy of what we see so um the highest level of your expression of grappling is what the the sparring you know not competition but distant training it's sparring right that's where you're the live action <laughs> we're going to go and you say okay you're trying to submit the other person do whatever you want to do and you're just basically training so that's the that's your expression of what your grappling or jujitsu is but at the lowest lowest level is the overall concept you just know a concept and you could say it and talk about it so if you look at it and you go, all you did is talk about concepts and never trained at all, you're just concept guy and nobody, you don't know anything because you haven't moved your body yet. 
So you have sparring at the top and then you have the concepts at the bottom. Now above that is the technical breakdown of the technique, right? We're actually going to start talking about the technique. The instructor shows it a couple minutes, five, 10 minutes, whatever they do. And then the next step is you get to drill it. Now you do that dead drilling, which we have to distinguish between what people call drilling, rote repetition or dead drilling against a nine, against a non-resisting opponent, right? That's what we're, we don't want to do, but you, so you drill it. And then now you put that into positional sparring and then you start sparring with the stuff you've already learned. So to me, there's positional sparring and then there's sparring. And then right in between, that's where I consider where the constraint led ecological approach falls because we take that concept at the bottom and we convert it to a task and a goal into that positional sparring in a constrained environment. And now you're doing just that. And that's where the learning happens and you skip so that's what you say in maximizing your training. You know, that hour you come in, let's skip the warm up. Let's skip the technical breakdown. Let's skip the drilling. Let's go right to the constraint part. Let's go right to that level below the sparring. You do that. You fig- get your tasks, your goals, what's your intention, where should you be focus of attention, all the, the words we use. And then you do that. And now as you're playing those games, that's what I, that's the real time learning. That's where the learning is actually happening because you're going against a non-resistant opponent. You're attuning to the environment. And then what are we always looking for when we're talking about technique? How do we transfer that technique you drilled to live sparring? So how do we traditionally do that? You drill it a bunch of times. You go into some positional sparring, which sometimes turns into full rolling anyway, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Start here and then finish or finish the round. (laughs) Yeah. So instead of, you know, so skipping those, 100 armbar reps or those 100 leg drag reps. Let's go into the position where we see this constraint, this small little environment. Let's put you there. See what comes out. We'll give you the attempt where we'll give you your goals. And now the transfer is actually not there because you're already doing it. You're skipping that process of actually having to take that dead technical technique and putting it to line. You're already doing it. So you're getting trot. You're constantly failing. You're, you know, you, you trial and error. It doesn't work this time. Now it does, and you stay, and then that's what we call repetition without repetition, which is the key, which is all this is is uh, is based on pretty much. Instead of repetition for repetition's sake or repetitions for reps, it's repetition without. You're putting yourself in these small, constrained environments, or and they get broader, or you can shrink them down, or whatever you want to do with them, depending on the coach's goal and what they're – what their their knowledge is. So we're pretty much skipping all that other stuff, getting rid of it, saying, yeah, it may have some value, but it's not the value we're looking for. We want to go right to this. And then now you'll see a transfer into the sparring or in hopefully into competition if that's your goal. So, that, so that's one, thing that Dr., one thing that Dr. Robert Gray says about uh, ecological or the constraints-led approach is constraints are not supposed to be generalized. They're supposed to be individual-based and one thing that I see in jujitsu is a class is a lot of general constraints for everyone. And maybe it's just n- me not being experienced enough as a coach or as someone that's been in it. But how how can how does this, you know, the science say from obviously the like Rob Gray say that, you know, the constraints need to be individual based, but most people doing it in jujitsu do a general constraint for the entire class. How how where is that a, on purpose or is that just we're in the early stages of doing it and a lot of us just don't know 
how to do individual constraints for every single person, or maybe all a general constraint is good enough because it's maybe a triage, like I mentioned, like it's the it's the lowest point where everyone could get better. Well, I think, and also you have to take it, you know, we're grappling compared to say, you know, baseball or football or whatever sports they're doing on, which has, you know, highly specialized coaches and all the money behind it and everything like that. And then, you know, we take a regular grappling class. Sometimes you don't know who's showing up and who's not, but individual constraints, that's this, that's between the coaches. And, that, you know, with some of my students, I take more, you know, you zone in on certain things, this and that, but for a whole group class, I think grappling is so, uh, I think this is actually one of the most, one of the most perfect sports to actually do this type of approach because you're literally interacting with another human every second, right? Compared to say baseball or, you know, ten, you know, you, you have these equipment thing, you know, you're, your pitcher, your catcher, your hitter, you're not, there's a lot of time in between that stuff. When we're grappling, we're, we're always in contact. We're always, we're always um, interacting with each other. And if you look at, uh, so you say take invariance, which things that are known to be true, th those can just be, you know, how how individual do you want to get when you know if you trap the shoulder and you trap the wrist and you extend your hips into the elbow, it's an arm bar. There's really, those are the main invariants of an arm bar. So how individual do we have to get at that point? Because as you go down and towards submissions and stuff, you can be a little more prescriptive with your with your thoughts or with your cues or your instruction because there's only so many ways to, you know, break an arm or submit somebody. So you're you're going to get those those invariants are very important for what we're looking for for those cues. But when it's an overall game, say guard passing or pinning, there's different things, and we're actually letting those person we're letting that person figure out their own individual constraints and what they can do because we all have different action action capacities. Like everybody always talks about technique and this beautiful technique. Listen, we all have different body sizes, si uh, speed, power, everything. Like we're teaching actually, which nobody really talks about. We're actually teaching timing. <laughs> You're right, we're actually understanding when to do this. So when somebody says they're teaching a technique, my classes revolve around or teaching a timing, uh, teaching um, things that can't be taught. Like, where's your technique for balance? You know, if you go to a class, the most important thing about guard passing and staying on top is generally going to be your balance, right? You want to be the top player and stay the top player. If you get knocked over on your butt, guess what? You're not passing guard anymore. So where in any... BJJ fanatics or whatever DVD you want, where's the technique on balance? It doesn't say that. You, you see uh, knee slide, leg drag, uh, Toriando, whatever. You don't see uh, staying on top, balance, not getting knocked over. You don't see that. So those are the things we're actually training. So I think we kind of reverse it where people teach technique to get that outcome. And we're teaching more where's the outcome and then the techniques will kind of fall out afterwards depending on the situation. Yeah, we we kind of do like a hybrid right now, which probably isn't, uh, per the science, the, the most beneficial. But um, Cody, our gym owner, you know, he really likes ecological, but he doesn't, he's not completely sold on it, like probably most people are when they first start, uh, probably based on just our own, lack of knowledge in it and whatnot but not only that but it's it's hard we he found that it was hard for beginners to 
jump straight into like a a, a beginner's class, you know, the day oneers on jujitsu and using the ecological approach to learn technique, right? Because he said it was like, you know, hard on these people, their first day, boom, they're already getting into live action. They might be uncomfortable with it. They might still be shy with it. Uh, they could be very insecure with their bodies or, you know, previous trauma that might've happened. And then boom, they show up and like, Hey, today we're going to mountain, you know, the, it's like not reading the room. Yeah. Uh, how, how can, how should we approach teaching new practitioners using the ecological approach, uh, whether it's differential learning constraints led, whatever it is, how, how should we approach new practitioners that don't, that have no base understanding of anything and then start getting some action capacity for them to achieve a goal within a scenario or a game? Yeah, I think it's a, but for me personally, from what I, I mess, you know, new people come in all the time or kids or people that, you know, some haven't even played sports, whatever. And I've taught a lot of people over the years and new people and say, I think what you said, how do you show them technique? Well, cause I'm not showing them technique. I'm actually showing them the, the parts of grappling that I want someone to work on. So what you do is with people like that, you constrain the environment so much and you make it easier for them. You know, obviously, so, so a new person walks in, they've never done anything before and you go, okay, I want to make this real easy for them. I'm going to show them a closed guard arm bar, right? Why are you in closed guard? <laughs> what does that even mean to somebody who's new? You know, and it's like, you're saying that, but it's like, what would you show somebody to walk them in in a technique based gym? They, they have no context of anything, right? Right. Closed guard doesn't mean anything. Why am I even passing a guard? Why is this person on their back? Uh, with their feet in front of me and I'm standing above them, you know, like I'm going to show you a guard pass to make you feel comfortable, comfortable in what, why are we even passing that guard? So what I'll take people is, well, you know, usually from the beginning of my class, that's when I like to do at least the stand up portion of the thing. Cause I get, it's easy to get people warm, but that even won't even involve takedowns. That'll just be like hand fighting scenarios, you know, grabbing the back of the head, shoulders, you know, hand fighting this and that. That's what people need to know. That's that engagement, right? That's that phase already. And then we'll just, like Greg, Greg, uh, one of the best things I learned from Greg is this playing the whole game in a class. So you actually understand why we're doing this. Something from standing, something from passing our guard, and something from pinning. So what I kind of like to do with new people, I like to give them that standing portion. They understand what hand fighting is, kind of plan, not let somebody take you down without even a takedown. Just getting used to that grappling environment. Then I'll actually start people generally from pinning. Because if you're getting pinned, then you understand, this is not fun. I don't like getting pinned. This is bad. Oh, so that's why I have to get my legs in front of me. Oh, that's why we have a guard. And then we keep backing it out that way because I'll do that a lot. I'll go from the end and then back it out. Now you actually understand why you need to have a guard because you don't want to get pinned because you can't do anything from being pinned. <laughs> the only thing you can do is survive and escape or try to get back to your feet, which people need to learn. Like I think we, and in jujitsu, we do a lot of weird things like, Okay, I'm going to make it real easy. I'm going to show you Americana from side control. And they just accept being flat on their back with their arms like this. Mm -hmm. And then uh, arm. And then we kind of train people to stay on their back, to accept these bad positions. And that's what the defensive jujitsu aspect always comes into play, where uh, Pre always says the thing is goes, you know, you lay on your back and you give up a cross face and underhook, and then you complain jujitsu is hard. 
Well, yeah, it's really <laughs> it's really hard from a cross face underhook and getting smashed, right? So we're actually going to show you how to get back out of those things. And actually, I like to teach from the defensive focus because I actually show you what you need to avoid. And then as you're teaching defense, the other person's learning offense. And now we're it's always coupled together. Like uh, Rob Gray talks about that. We don't want stuff decoupled. Like we think we could take away all these really cool things in jujitsu, take them away from the live environment, drill them a hundred times, and then we throw them back in and say, all right, now go make it work. And then when you go, hey, coach, that didn't work. Well, you got to drill it more or you got to do it harder. No, let's already put you in there in a good, everybody's not going crazy trying to smash you all the time when we're playing these games because you can't do that. You'll be tired right. in, in two, three minutes. <laughs> you actually understand. And that, you know, new people, that's, you know, pairing them with a good partner, pairing them with uh, this and that. Like, uh, I know in my classes who's going to go good with the new people. I kind of understand that. I train a teen class, and I know my daughter is very good with training with newer people, you know. So I'll let her go with that. I'm not going to keep the kid that just is going to smash them. And then in an adult class, you don't give them the, the monster brown belt that's just going to crush them and take away their soul. Right. You got to that. That's the that's part of coaching. Right. You can't have these this cookie cutter. This is how I run my class. And then which is funny, I always say, uh, you know, I, I always see online all oh, the ecological approach is just so much life training. You're uh, these everybody's going to be always out of control and getting hurt. You need to ease people into sparring. We need to give them, you know, some schools, you know, spar for months or six months or this and that. But just think. So if you're a new person never really grappled before, and you do a traditional 15, 20-minute warm-up, you're shrimping up and down the mat, no context while you're shrimping. You're just, <laughs> right? You're just shrimping. And then you're doing some maybe some jumping jacks, some this, what I don't know what the warm-up is anymore. Who, who, who knows? I don't do those type of warm-ups. But you do 15 minutes of non-live jiu-jitsu, right? And then you do 20, 30 minutes of static drilling against a non-resisting opponent and then we go all right guys let's go spar and they go so then now they're sparring they may have learned that closed guard arm bar so what are they going to do they're going to try like super hard to get that closed guard arm bar to spam work. it spam it all day and then they're going to go really high right and they already did on and off hardly pretty much any live jiu-jitsu at all so they're going to go really hard because they want to they want this technique they just learned to work right so they're going to just try to force it. But now, so we're actually making people in the traditional model of my opinion, making them more wild or out of control. We're actually creating that environment because we keep it so stale during warm-ups, so stale during drilling. And then we throw them in and go, all right, now go submit to other person that you hardly know or, you know, go after this, you know, white belt or blue belt and then try to get it. Because everybody wants to win, right? That's how we – we treat right. sparring, right? I want to get that tap. But now you take the ecological approach and you've literally already played live games for 30 minutes or so at a controlled environment where you're actually in. You got to fail. You're going to mess up. You might have been already tapped 30 times <laughs> in those games, you know, because you're playing an armbar game or you're playing or you've been held down this whole time. You're playing a pinning game. So now when we go into sparring at the end of class, You've already been doing sparring for this 30 minutes, and now you're calmed down. You already used a lot of energy. You already got attuned with the, the part, training partners you're with. Me, I always like to mix the training partners, too. You know, like a lot of times you always get your buddy, your, your drilling partner, right, right, in class, and you you train with that person every time. 
But no, I, if I have a good mix of students, which I usually do, depending on size and height and skill level, I'll constantly have people switch each game or within a game, just so they understand a different body type affords a different thing. So if you keep doing that and now you're at the end and you're sparring, you've already been doing it. So you don't have that. Oh, I really got to hit that technique. I just learned. I want to, you know, we don't care about that. I, I don't care if you hit the technique. We just learned that day because we were actually, we're playing jujitsu the whole time already. And now we're going to play some more. And that's, that's where I consider and that the efficiency and the maximizing the training time. Like, uh, I hear all, oh, it's really good for kids or it's really good for competitors. I would argue it's actually better for the hobbyists. If I train, yeah. two to, if I train two to three times a week for an hour each class, Agreed. I want the most amount of mat time I can get. You know, I didn't work a job eight, nine, ten hours a day, come home, ran out, and then I get to sit around and listen to somebody talk about how to do a perfect arm bar for 15 minutes. You know, no, I want to get in there. If I, if I leave my house, if I leave my family, I want to sweat. <laughs> I want to work. I want to actually participate in the, the sport, you know, because that's what we're all yeah. doing. Yeah, it's one thing that I always mention uh, when talking to people or rolling with uh, new new practitioners is, you know, it'd be like, you'll ask them, hey, you want to go for a round? And the second you start, you know, in the traditional uh, model of learning, a lot of the times when you get a brand new person, they could be doing it for a couple weeks, a couple months, and you start sparring with them and they're like, I just don't know what to do. And it's like, yes. it's okay. You just, you just, and it's hard when you're sparring with them uh, to, motivate them to want to spar when they have so little knowledge and they like you said they just spam the same buttons over and over again okay I'm, i just learned toriando today i'm gonna just try toriando i'm gonna try toriando i'm gonna try Toriando. i keep getting swept why does this not work um and so one thing i always hear is i just don't know what to do how does how how is that different with ecological um the you know when it comes time for sparring, you kind of mentioned it, you know, they're kind of doing it the whole time. Do you find that the people, let me, how, how should I phrase this? Are they going straight to what they learned in that class? Or is it because they've been doing it for so much in that one class, they already have more tools in their toolbox? That's uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause that's a point I bring up a lot when I talk about this is when I've been in a lot of traditional schools, people that are even blue belts are on and I'm like, I'll, they'll be, I'll watch them or I'll train with them and they'll be in spot and they're like, and they'll just be looking at me and they're like, I'm lost. And they're like, right, right, that's what happens. Yeah. You know, new white belt. You, that's me. <laughs> we, we get lost because there's so much going on all the time. And if you're always trying to, if you're always trying to recall techniques you learned, right? in that months or year or whatever, you, you know, two, three techniques a week or even more, seven, eight, nine techniques in a week, you're, you're never going to be able to recall them. So what in the, for the ecological approach as, and I train a lot of kids and, and teens that have never done any really grappling before, not, you know, sometimes not even played decent amount of sports is if you keep playing the game every day, something from standing, something from passing, and something from pinning, and we just give you an, an intention where you are and an intention in these constrained environments, you're not really going to get lost because you're, you're, you're always going to have a goal where you are. So if you take one class, if we're standing, the goal is to get the person to the ground. So the other person's job is to not get taken down, right? Very simple. Everybody knows that. Now we're in a passing position. The goal is to stay on top, hold the person down and not get swept. 
That's their only goal. I don't care if they're throwing out D slices, Toriander, whatever. If they're not doing that, they can't continue to pass guard. So you could do anything you want, but as long as you meet that criteria, you're still in the passing position. Now, if you're playing guard, if your goal is to make and maintain connections, keep your feet in front of you and keep them away and not let them get by your feet and knees, it doesn't matter what guard you're playing, Delaheva, reverse Delaheva, lasso, worm, whatever you're playing, the goal is always the same. So now it doesn't matter what their configuration is. They know they need to get their feet and knees back in front of the person so they continue playing guard. And now when somebody's getting pinned, they know I have to get my feet back in front of them or get back to my feet. So there's no situation you could put these people in where they don't have a goal, right? So, but when you do it in a technique-based approach on what you learned, you're always going to be searching for these, like Chris Payne says, these Rolodex of techniques that you've learned and try to cycle through them to get to them. So you're going to get lost. They're going to just stare at you. And I can tell when people are thinking, you know, I'll go do these seminars or train at different camps. And I'm like, I'll put them in a position and they'll look at me and, and I'm like, oh, they don't know where they are, you know, because they're trying to think of a technique. So that's where, to me, this shines, the ecological approach, because you're not, you're not lost. You may not win or you may not be good in that position, but at least you know what the goal is. And if you have a goal, what's your intention and where should your focus of attention be? You're not going to be lost in any position. You know, you could be putting worm guards and spider guards and lasso guards, but you're going to know why you're caught there and then how to get out and what's your goal at the top. So it really cuts down on all that thinking that you need to do, pulling up these techniques that you think is the perfect counter when the reality is it doesn't really work like that in the live situation. Yeah. Um, when it comes to, let's say you mentioned in their BJJ fanatics earlier with like balance and instructionals and constraints led or whatever ecological approach, what, what place does instructionals have in that class or outside the class in learning? Like, what is the relationship between the two? Can can someone watch instructionals and try to learn techniques and then go into an ecological class and apply them? Or is that, like, what's the relationship between the two? Uh, yeah, I still love instructionals. I think instructionals are great. I, I would tell anybody to watch them, look at it, because you kind of see where their mind is. You know, some are better than others, obviously. Like I always used to, and it's funny because I heard Greg when he first started coming on talking about it. And if I used to watch a Donaher DVD, I used to like the first DVD the most because that's when he would talk about the overall game and the goal of it. And then he shows you all the techniques that can, that can get you there, right? There's always what the central problem and all his little things he talks about. Or I was a huge uh, Mendes Brothers fan. Like I used to go on Mendes Brothers online, which was amazing. And Hoffa would do these amazing instructionals, but I would try to pick out the concepts that he's talking about it and where can I apply it. So I'd watch all their stuff. So you could still do that. And listen, go learn any technique you want, but you're not going to start hitting that technique till you put it into that live environment and understand why that technique works. Kind of gets you thinking a little bit more about things. So the context I per- behind it. Yeah. Like I like working, I like watching a lot of, uh, you know, ADCC or live roles or watch like B team sparring or stuff like that. Like, uh, it was interesting because, uh, I was watching Craig Jones. He put like a 35 minute YouTube video for his power pins 
And it was just him sparring. He wasn't teaching any technique. It was like 35 minutes of him sparring. And I just watched that. And I'm like, okay, so what is he doing? I didn't want to buy his DVD because I was into the ecological stuff. I'm like, maybe I can look at this and kind of see what he's doing. And can I make my students look towards that? Where should their attention be? So I started coming up with these different games. And I understood all he was doing was controlling with his shins, you know, above and below the knees. He was doing all these different things with his power pins that are not traditional jujitsu pins. And I started creating games around that. And I was doing it myself when I'm in live roles. I started, I create my own games against people that don't know they're doing it because that's how I learn because I, I need my time to learn too. Right. So the, right. the sparring, the sparring environment is my time to learn. Even if they don't know they're there, I could kind of put the action to where I want since I have a little more experience. So I started training my students on it. And in a class or two, these kids were shin pinning and controlling and getting all these different type of rides. And I'm like, because the concept of what he was doing, where was his, what was his intention and where was his focus of attention? And that's all you really kind of need. And then certain kids are going to do it different way. Certain adults are going to do it this way, but the goal is, the goal is still the same. And I'm like, okay, that was another signal to me that, that I was able to watch somebody do something, make some games around it. What I thought was the, the, where the focus should be. And it created a good outcome. You know, what one thing, that we, we keep hearing about in, you know, cause I'm pretty active in, in like the, the discord, the ecological discord. And, uh, I listen to a lot of content about ecological and I, I haven't been able to find anyone that is most, most people are heavy into the no gi side of ecological and not very many are gi, gi oriented. My, my training is 99% gi. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at games, I'm like, okay, how how can I put constraints on this situation? Because there's so many grips. There's so many different ways to hold someone down. There's like so many variables that I can throw at someone. And I know when it comes to developing a game, you don't want you don't want decoupling, right? So you don't want a, an unrealistic situation. You don't want to put someone in like, hey, you're in bottom side control, but you can't use frames. It's like, when am I ever not going to try to get frames back in front of someone to, in order to escape, right? So you don't want to decouple from the live scenarios. What, what is the biggest difference when it comes to gi and no gi games to where you can throw, you can use those so many different variables that come with gi because of the clothing? Yeah, I, I've, uh, I'm more specifically no gi now, but I was doing, I was adopting the ecological stuff and that I was still training gi also. And it's the same thing. It's just, it's, it's going to be a little slower. You're going to have to deal because, because in reality, all we're doing in any grappling sport, I don't care if it's folk style, freestyle, we're just grip fighting, right? That's all we're ever doing. And what does the gi afford you? More grips. But sometimes those grips are stronger, but they're actually not better than no gi grips. You know, like if you get a deep collar grip on somebody, they can still posture their head up a decent amount compared to a back of the head collar tie where you can't, and you're just not going to be able to hold that as long as you can to a gi grip. All gi grips, like the reason I don't like gi as much right now, it's still a fun game and it is a different game. It's just very artificial in my opinion, because it, what it does, it, ex, it actually extends inside position and different things. Like if you take a, uh, a worm guard and you pull that lapel all the way out and you grab it, 
you basically are extending inside position for two to three, you know, a couple feet. You're basically doing that. Or if I reach up and grab the belt to bear, why is the belt grip used? It's such a strong grip because you basically don't have to get around the person's waist, but you grab the belt, which is wrapped around the person's waist. So all you're doing, so what would I teach somebody? Get rid of those grips. <laughs> Hand fight constantly. Constantly break through those grips, set them up in these positions. It's just an extension of a grip, of a known grip. It's not a magical grip. It's just an extension of it. You know, like uh, with Danaher, you say uh, it's like a noose around your neck, the collar. But it's still a grip, and it has its function, and it has what it's good at and what it's not good at. So all it is, it's, it's just an extension of grips, and it kind of it slows the game down. I actually think, and this may annoy some people, but I think the gi-based <laughs> gi game is actually more dependent on strength and power mm. because you can grab something and hold it forever where no gis – maybe a little more athletic and you're more scrambly. Obviously, you still want to be strong. But in the gi game, you could stifle somebody down completely just with B-style rock climber grips and strength. And you could just pin that person's sleeve or, you know, pants grip or whatever and pin it or grab the grab anything, right? And then you're going to get it. But, the, but then how are you actually going to work around that? A technique ain't going to teach you how to work around that. It's got to be in that live environment. So I set up all my gi games the same way. Like I would do stuff like when I was teaching defensive jiu-jitsu. Uh, I think I have a video on my Instagram of uh, two of my teens. And I basically, one person takes the belt and I had them wrap it around their body above their elbows. So they couldn't, so they couldn't open up their elbows and they can only use their hands like this. And then I had the other person behind them or whatever. I want you to just keep attacking collar chokes. So I wanted to teach him you have to go with the collar chokes and not use your hands to defend. And that was a constraint. And, man, you watch them, and they're they're very hard to choke because if you can't stop the person from getting an underhook, they can still rotate, and you'll just rotate and spin right out of that choke. So I've done it in the gi. I've done the defensive jiu-jitsu. I've had people on my back for an hour training sessions just trying to choke me, and all I was doing was defending. It's hard. But it's 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 doable. I, I've done it for for a couple of years now, playing around like that. So I think when people think ecological is just for no gi, that's just because the majority of people are kind of doing it more no gi. But you can still do it in the gi. It's the same thing. It's it's all about grips, right? That's all we're ever doing. You, you can't win a, a grappling contest without grips. It's just not going to happen. You're yeah, fighting my, over you're fighting over spaces. One one of my. Uh good friends jordan pressinger from jordan tc's jiu-jitsu on youtube he he's come on the podcast three times now but the, one of the biggest things that he's mentioned the very first time we talked to him was techniques are just different grips and that's all it ever is is just you're gripping here gripping there and then that's just what a technique is whether it's a submission or a guard pass or whatever and it's it's true i feel like in in gi you know i i would i would agree with you if, if a lot of people have a hard time with my grip breaking my grips because I have relatively strong grips so I can hold on to someone, you know, for a good amount of time. And when it comes to, you know, smaller practitioners, it's even, even harder for them. You mentioned, you kind of alluded to it earlier when it comes to, you know, your, when you roll against a, a larger person in the constraint led approach, how do we develop games to where a small person can still learn just as much as the big person in when they go against each other? like in these games, because a lot of times 
size can just neutralize a smaller opponent by just being heavy and just not letting them work. How do we how do we prevent that within a constraint led class? Uh, you know, partner pairing is always big, um, but also the constraints of the game. Right. It's almost like if we if we look about it, if we if you take the most uh what's the what's probably the I like to use this analogy sometime, I'm kind of working on it. If we went down to the smallest level of a grappling engagement, what would that ever be? Probably like thumb wrestling, right? <laughs> right? That's what you're doing. You're grappling, you're trying yeah, to get position, yeah, yeah. you're trying to hold them down. You know, the bigger person obviously will probably win that game too, but they're still in the fight. You know, I could do a thumb wrestling with my uh, my daughter and we could have a little battle on it. And then we keep backing it up. And then once you get into more arm wrestling or bigger games, it's size and weight come into play. But if you keep constraining it to a small environment, that person that's smaller, because I, I play, which is, I, I love to jump in when I train with the kids and the teens. I jump in all the time, right? Because, but we're still battling over the same thing in this smaller environment. So it makes it, it it's not where that huge size and strength and, because like you can have, and technique wise, you can have black belts train with white belts and blue belts, and it'll look very similar to how it should look because they're, they're only, their goal and their attention is only focused on one thing or one or two things. You never give somebody like eight things to focus on. That's just too much. You give them one or two, a couple things, and that's the game, right? And you just play in those environments. And guess what, though? Sometimes you're going to lose those games, and that's good. Like, I don't know why we think every technique or drill we should do, everybody should always win that battle. No, this this is grappling you're literally in a constant battle of one person winning and the other person not, <laughs> right? So you're going to get into these environments and say, hey, you go with this person and you got smashed and you couldn't get out of this. Well, now we switch partners. Maybe you learn something from that and now you get there. Like um, I, I always think it is sometimes because I know they, you know, jujitsu is for everybody and this and that, but, you know, sometimes it is still it isn't, right? And you just play these games. We still have to put in effort. We have to put this realism into it, you know, and then and not saying you can be, but I, I train, I've been a smaller guy my whole life and, <laughs> and I've come through traditional classes and I've got destroyed in a traditional training environment too. And I'm not seeing anything different in, in the ecological side of things. I'm actually seeing less of that because people are playing the games and you understand you're not fighting for the death for every win. You're actually exploring the grappling environment, you know, and it's up to you how you want to play those games, you know. Do you think it's ever, how do you handle, or if you've ever experienced it, kind of being for newer practitioners, a little bit demoralizing if they just have a string of classes where they just aren't connecting the dots? In the ecological approach or? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I haven't really, and I, I've had, it's funny, I had a new, uh, new, new, like, 12 or 13 year old girl come in and she had no prior experience in anything and shy at first. We started playing the games, good partners, good pairings. And a couple of days, she's already, she understands when you're on top, you just need to stay on top. You need to look for her head and arm control and just hold that as long as you can. And that's where a lot of the games are. Just hold what you can, what those controls. And now we can work from there or we work backwards a lot, which is a huge, a huge thing. Even if you're in a traditional IP environment, Look at working backwards. It actually really takes away a lot of, uh, like, like I say, you, I, you know, you show like a five step pass, right? You start here, you knee slide, you get the underhook, you get side control, you position them out, and then you arm bar. 
there's so many steps, right? And you may drill that beautifully. And then you go in a live environment, you can't get past step one or two. You didn't even get by that guard. But if we start you at the end, at the completed pass and back it up a step, you actually know where you need to go, right? So now you're kind of, oh, there's where I need to go. And now when you're actually sparring and rolling, you're going to find these little pathways that have already been created because you've already done it. You know, like I did, um, I did a Globetrotter seminar in Arizona, uh, in November and my, my class, uh, was called Passing Without Technique. Right. So I took the, <laughs> Probably pissed a lot of people off oh, in yeah. YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not on YouTube. So that's good. It was just in that class environment. So, so what, what I did is I started all the class from the end range of these passes, like maybe starting in a, in a quarter guard. And the top person's job is to only free their knee, uh, free their foot to one side or the other. So you can either knee slice or you could go to three quarter mount, use your other foot, free the foot. And that's all they had to do. That's the whole game. Bottom person, hold on to that foot. And I give them the extra incentive of not getting pinned and try to get to your, your knees or turtle, like you're trying to get out. So that person on top learns control. They learn how to pin, right? And they learn how to free their foot. Cause who cares if they don't, if they free their foot in five seconds or 20 seconds, as long as they can hold that person down, they can still work. Because that's the main goal. Be on top, stay on top, hold the person down, right? So now we do that, and now we back it up. Now you're in a half guard. Now you need to free your knee and then your foot. You already freed your foot earlier. Now you just got to free your knee. Now you already did the other part. Now we back it up even more. Maybe go to a body lock. You got to beat the bottom knee. We give you all these goals where your attention should be all the way from backwards out. And then when I did after teaching, you know, I think it was like, it was an hour class, but about 45 minutes in, we went through all these different games, all this live training, kept it nice and light and fun. I called up, uh, there was about 60 people in class. So I called, uh, I said, Hey, who's here as a white belt? And one side of the room, I grabbed one and one side of the other and I pulled them into the center. One person had, I think three months. Another person had like nine months. And I said, all right, let's play all the games now and let's show your job on bottom is to not let them get by your feet and knees, get to your hips. Your other one is just try to get by the feet and knees. And they started going and everybody was cheering them on. They looked amazing. They looked like blue and purple belts going at it because they only stayed in this small constrained environment. And everybody started clapping. They were loving it and this and that. I'm like, well, this is because I'm like, hey, this may go really wrong. This might just be a mess. <laughs> <laughs> but it came out really well. And I was like, this is another example of where I understand this philosophy, this approach has so much benefit for, for people, especially newer people. Cause like you're saying, they get past that. I'm lost. What technique I'm going to do. It's still going to happen, obviously, but at least they're going to have a goal in every scenario. And that, that was really cool to see. Uh, one book I'm reading right now is called show your work. And there's a lot of parallels to it's basically about how to, as creative people, how to get your work in front of people to pay attention and whatnot. It's it's a great book. I'm, I'm, it's by Austin Cleon. If you guys want to check it out at home, but one thing in here he talks about is keeping a notebook of your your work and your ideas and stuff like that, so you can look back on it and see where how far you come. And I was just wondering, as a coach, when you're developing games or figuring out what's working and what not's working, do you keep notes, video? How how do you know? how far you've come and what's worked and what's not worked. So you don't go back to it. 
that's something I'm very bad at. I used to do it more <laughs> back in the day. I used to like get spreadsheets and figure out and write down all this stuff back from my early karate and Jukundo days and all that stuff. Now, now I'm, I'm going in with the plan is always play the whole game in every class. And then I just kind of watch my room as they're developing and I kind of figure out different things I want to do right now in the last month or so. I'm actually, I've changed it even more where I'm trying to formulate all the classes around the sport or what works in jujitsu in grappling. So I'm letting the sport train the sport. <laughs> so I'm, I'm making it even more. I'm doing a very zoomed out view right now. Like I think what people mess up on, not mess up, whatever, they could do whatever they weigh a lot. They want to still go so constrained and they want a technique. They want a specific technique to emerge. That's not the goal right? You want the outcome to come out and we don't care about what technique we get there. So I'm doing a more zoomed out approach right now. And I'm not even like you, there's barely any semblance of any type of technique you'll see. It's based on the rules of grappling and what I deem to be important, right? And I'll add in things like, which is not a rule in jujitsu. If you get your guard passed, if your shoulders are flat on the mat for more than three seconds, you get pinned and the round's over. You're done. Because I don't want people standing there and just accepting laying on their back. They're always trying to get back to their feet. And along getting back to their feet, they get back to a guard. So they're actually getting at it. So I'm training people that way where they don't have to look at all these certain techniques that they need to get. So, so to answer your question, no, I don't keep any notes on that, but I do have a pretty good rec, pretty good recollection of what I've done and what I've come through. And then, you know, I'll see some stuff I've done on Instagram previously or other classes. I'm always kind of talking with, I talk with my students a lot too. Hey, what do you, you know, what would you like to work on? Give them that sense of autonomy. You know, every, it, they're just my training partners at this point. You know, I'm not, I'm not the purveyor of information to give to them. That's why I jump into classes a lot and I kind of see what they're working. I want to kind of go towards what the goals of the class are, what the session intention is. That's a good, Great book, if you haven't picked it up, is The Cringe Strength-Led Approach by, uh, I believe, Ian Renshaw and Keith Davids. And they have four print. Yeah, they have four. It's it's a super easy read. It's, a, you know, Rob Gray's book's great, but this is actually show you how to actually, and it shows other sports, but it helps you design your classes. And they have four main principles that they go into each class with. You have your session intention, which is huge, because everybody needs to know what the intention is. Then you have... uh representative learning design you want to represent the learning environment and then you have um constraint to afford that's the games constraint to afford and then you have repetition without repetition that's the drilling part but if you go into every session like that you're going to get a good outcome in this approach if you kind of know what you're looking for you got to play with it some of my classes may have been awful some are not i don't know i haven't got any bad i haven't got, got much negative feedback yet which is odd i hear a lot of people talking about Oh, this person's complaining about this or this person, my student said this. I train a lot of people. I do seminars with a lot of people and I haven't really gotten any super negative feedback, you know? So, so that's good. So I'm just kind of, I'm trying to keep playing and see how far I could push these certain ecological boundaries with my classes. So I'm not really taking so much notes on it because I'm just kind of, I'm kind of just exploring the broader picture of everything, you know? How do you know this is this is one thing that I I keep asking myself and as, as a junior practitioner or low level practitioner like I'm just a blue belt but doing it for almost 6 years now how do I know if I'm teaching a class if my constraint game my constraint led game is 
either I'm not coaching it right, I don't have the right constraints, or it's just not a good game. You know what I mean? Like, how do I know if I need to give it more time, let it work itself out, or if I'm just like, I got to throw it away. It's a wash. This just isn't isn't what it is. Well, that's what I think where if you look at those four principles is when you start seeing the games being played, which I've done this before, if it doesn't look like what we see in grappling or jujitsu or people gaming the game, because that's what can happen a lot. You could game the game. And if it doesn't, it doesn't have that representative learning design. If it doesn't look like grappling that we know, that's always a good indication. You know, that's why I get a kind of where I watch a lot of these different rule sets come out and you watch like Polaris and what I believe you can't do heel hooks in Polaris now. You can still do ankle locks and everything. And I was watching like the one with the B team and 10th planet, but guys kept falling to their back when they were about so because they did not want to get a give up a sub. So they wouldn't turn their back to get up because that's easier to get a sub instead of laying on your back like this and defending. To me, that rule set made it not representative anymore of what we usually see in grappling. You shouldn't, it shouldn't be as incentivized to lay on your back and let somebody mount you and just cover up your neck because you're not giving, because you didn't want to give up your back and risk getting choked. So if things start emerging that don't really look like the way you grappling kind of looks, that's how you kind of know the games are starting to fail. Like, uh, I play a game, uh, to teach like shooting in or ankle picks, you'll the common game. You'll see like the toe tag or ankle tag game. So we're playing standing and my job is to reach down and tag the other person's ankle. Right. And their job is to not get their ankle tagged. So what starts happening? If you don't want your ankle tag, you might drop down on all fours, keep your feet away and you're just kind of grabbing at the air, but you're not letting anybody touch your ankle. So what you would add into that is, okay, you can lose by also letting somebody get and run to your back. So now you can't just shoot in all crazy for the ankle because now your back's going to get taken. So that's a way to keep adjusting the game to get the outcome you want. But it's up to the coach to kind of know what they're doing and see and kind of watch. You can't just set it and forget it. Go, oh, I got these great 10 set of games I saw on Instagram. Let's roll, guys. <laughs> right? Let's go. Which is good for starter. If anybody wants to get into it, those starter games are good. Go watch standard uh Instagram or Greg's look at those games because those games have been used a lot. So they're kind of understand, but understand what they're doing, why they're getting to those outcomes and, and what they want to do. So now you can constantly adjust them because some games are going to fail, right? Just like, I don't know how many times through your six years have you drilled techniques that have never worked ever. I'm sure a lot. I'm, I'm literally six years of <laughs> yeah. <me> trying jujitsu <laughs> to well, this day. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like pre. Preet Nicholson, the defensive guy, he has a good thing he likes to say, and I always remember him saying, he goes, so you're average, say you're training for, say you'd go to a class and they give you two techniques to learn, right? Or three. The classic is three techniques, right? And then the next class, you may get another three techniques. That's six techniques in a week. Now you do another week. That's 12 techniques. Now in a month, that's 24 techniques. Who can add 24 techniques into their game? I can't. I'm a black belt. Yeah. I can't add 24 techniques. I'm just worried about a couple things, you know, when I'm always changing my game, which I never stop doing. I constantly keep changing my game and adding different things because that's just going to help my students because they're not going to be my same size, my same. I'm older. You know, they're going to get trained like me, you know, so there's different things we could do. So all those, it's funny. We, we don't critique, we don't critique the, the traditional model for teaching a billion techniques 
that we don't even use any of them. <laughs> but then with the ecological thing, like, well, what if that game goes wrong? Well, then the game goes wrong. At least they were trying to solve a problem and they're doing a live environment yeah. and they might get some more cardio and conditioning and, and understand what they're doing. So to me, it's a very trial and error based. And instead of saying, okay, these are these certain techniques I learned from my instructor or I watched a DVD, now I'm going to take them, absorb them. I have to learn all their details. Then I give you their details in my body and now I give them to you. And now you have to make that work. You know, the person with the short legs like me, my front triangle is not going to be that great. And I've watched a hundred different YouTube videos on how to make my triangle better. But in reality, a guy has big shoulders and he's stronger and my little short stubby legs, it's just not going to work, you know? So we have to, yeah. you know, and the only way I know that is by sparring, is in these live environments. But if you want to learn a triangle, we can take it from the end game of the triangle and actually put people in that environment and actually understand what that triangle needs. Instead of the spider guard, pull the foot down, throw the leg over, trap the head, pull them down, get the submission – Let's go full lock triangle, release it one step back. Now let's battle over that. Let's try to stop their posture. Let's try to maintain the connection. Let's control their arms. Boom, get a tap. All right, you just got tapped by a triangle. Tapped again, tapped again. Now you got tapped 15 times. Now you understand why. Nobody got hurt. And now we're going to back it up even more. Now you got to try to lock your feet to that trap triangle. Now you work from there. You already did the end stage, so now you're doing it again. Now we back it up even more. So I'd rather do that. So now we learn what your legs can do compared to what my legs can do, you know, and that's how we kind of figure out. We put it into the machine, the ecological machine or constraint, and you see what it spits out. And it's always going to be different against anybody you train with, too. One thing that I know Greg is kind of trying to stay away from, and maybe I could be wrong about this, but putting out instructionals for games, right? Like Kit Dale has the his task-based game uh, instructional kind of thing, the 50 games for task-based games. And if, if people start doing that in the ecological space, what's stopping it from turning into a, a you know, like a, a BJJ fanatics where guys are just releasing games and guys are just arbitrarily playing. Like you mentioned, they saw these games, they bought this instructional and they just go throw them into class because Greg Souders does it or Kit Dale yeah. does it or Rob Cole does it. And then we start losing what makes ecological great in some people's eyes, which is the science of why we do it that way. Like what stops, what's going to stop this from going that path? Oh, uh, it's probably going to start happening. I'm assuming, but it like, like I had a class on, you know, leg locks for glove trotters, right? Mm -hmm. I was very proud of that class. I thought it was great. And those were my style of games I play, which is fine if it's, you know, but I'm not, I'm not selling a bunch of techniques. I'm just kind of doing this thing. And you know what? There should be BJJ fanatics on some of these games to see it from different people. But I think the issue Greg would have, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not quoting what he would say, but he believes in a certain way that the ecological approach should be done and it should be to this thing. So he's going to have probably his set of games, what he does, where kits, it's not really ecological because it's through his, I, what I've seen. It's through his personal details and what he fights over, which is still great. Kit's awesome. And he, he came up through the ranks and he was talking about drilling, you know, 10 years ago, don't drill. And he did his yeah. thing, but he kind of did it on his own. And then he said, all right, all this kind of stuff worked for me. So here's my details and games for you. Right. And then you're supposed to take that 
and kind of figure out what you need to do then. I, I'd like to see some more. You know, like uh, Chris Paynes has a really good uh, DVD uh, about learning jiu-jitsu, how to learn jiu-jitsu. And it's through his kind of eyes of what he sees. And that's what we're going to see still. We don't need that many more technique videos on BJJ Fanatics, which is fine. You actually do because everybody's body type's different, right? Go go search arm triangle on YouTube and there's like 20 different variations of an arm triangle, yeah. you know? And maybe you want to learn it that way. Maybe you want to go through 20 different YouTube videos and find the right one that works for you. I would say grab a partner, put their head and arm up, hold it, and see how long you can hold that till you get that tap, you know, and kind of work through it that way and kind of find out your own details. But I think we will get some fanatics and different things of games like that, you know, which I don't think that's bad. And that's the thing. Like people, I think, listen to Greg or these people that go, instructionals are bad. They're garbage. No, no, they're not. They're, they're, there's very knowledgeable people putting these instructionals out. Like I would never say the Mendes brothers don't know how to train, you know, like that's crazy talk, right? These guys are amazing, right? All these different instructors are great, but the caveat would be you're not a pro training with the Mendes brothers every day in all their classes. So kind of take what they do, get their DVD or whatever, join their online website, Submeta. I'm sure I love Lachlan. I, I, you know, I watched his 50-50 DVD like crazy and kind of figured out my leg game through that. But it was, it wasn't me drilling the techniques. It was me putting myself in those spots and saying, Hey, let's go. Let's play. Let's have some fun and figure out how to do that. You know, where you can train something like, that's what it was funny. I did that leg locks at the Globetrotter camp and I was like, like another one. I was like, man, this can be a mess. I've done it with people, but never with 60 people. Right. <laughs> you know, I've done it with uh, smaller groups. I've done it with brown belts. I've done it with gi people. And I did that in thing. And it, after the first five minutes, I'm like, all right, this is going to go really well. These people are understanding it. The energy was good. Everybody's playing. And the next day, I'm just walking in the camp environment and some lady comes up to me and says, Hey, I escaped a heel hook today in sparring. And I've never done leg locks. I'm like, that's awesome. Cause that's what I want to see. That's why I teach from the defensive perspective first. Instead of drilling heel hook mechanics of how to explode somebody's knee, let's show how not to get that happen. And now you actually are comfortable because I think people get hurt in leg locks because they don't understand what they need to do. Because the nature of leg locks is if I have you in a leg lock, in a couple seconds, you might be able to heel hook me. Where in arm bars and, and choke games, you're not going arm bar for arm bar because of the nature of the body, right? <laughs> you're not in arm bar games. But in the legs, it could change in a heartbeat. So if you don't know where you need to be, that's where people get hurt. And that's why, for me, playing these games, you will pick up this leg lock game so much quicker and so much safer than the traditional method, in my opinion. And I'll have I'll have a link to that down in the description below and on the audio or the video version on YouTube too, guys, if you guys want to check it out. It's a, it's a great uh, a video from like you mentioned globe trotters but hey rob i just want to thank you so much for coming on the show today man this is a blast conversation we can keep going for hours and hours but yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if people would last that long yeah yeah <laughs> but if i always like to end every show with the the same question if you could give one piece of advice to a brand new white belt what would it be oh man brand new white belt uh do ecological dynamics no for, for this. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> do ecological and dynamics. No, no, buy every DVD you want and rep on every trip. No, 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 not that either. Uh, learn to fail 
It's gonna happen. It's, this is not, and grappling is not an easy game. It's not. It's another person trying to hold you down and submit you. Understand that. Go and play, explore. Things don't have to be perfect. Understand what you want to do. Why did you get into this? And, you know, watch grappling. Watch different people. Watch what they're doing. Watch that and kind of, you know, you're, you'll learn through that knowledge, uh, that knowledge about instead of knowledge of, which is actually the training of it. It's good. Get all that stuff. Get in there, open mind, explore, mess up. Don't be afraid to fail and, you know, keep going. Don't, don't get, don't get smashed every day, you know, <laughs> which hey, I Rob, well, if people want to fo- Right. If people want to follow you or check out more of your content, where, where can they find you at? Uh, easiest way is uh, Instagram. So it's uh, liquid underscore Rob. So just look for liquid Rob or liquid underscore Rob, whatever. And then that's how you find me on Instagram uh, or go. If you're really interested, check out the discord, each ecological dynamics for submission grappling. Great discord. Get a lot of info, a lot of chatter going on all the time. People showing different games. So you'll see me on there. We're doing our first uh, March 1st. We're having the ecological dynamics uh, coaching training clinic in Springfield, Massachusetts. Greg Sauters will be there. Ed Ingemals, Scott Sievright, Josh Peacock, Pat Campanolia, me. And then we're just going to, it's going to be three days of all eco stuff. Perfect, so man. Hopefully well, we'll have another one after that too. If this one, if this one does well, which I think it did, it sold out in two days. So there's obviously some, uh, there's some, uh, need for it where people want to check it out. Yeah. I was in, I was in a, I was trying to convince Cody, our gym owner to go with me. He's like, I'm not going to Massachusetts. So maybe do it on the West coast next yeah, time. Yeah. Where, where are you? Where are you? <laughs> We're in Washington. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. If, uh, if you ever so. do any Globetrotter camps, the Arizona camps fun. I'm usually there. That's a fun one. If you, uh, if you ever want to try out one of those camps, that's a whole different I've, I've been wanting to go because Adolfo goes like yes. every year or once every year. So, or once yeah. every other year. So I'm trying yeah, to, we, I'm trying to go down there. So yeah, Adolfo took both of my classes and we, uh, we talked a little bit about it. He was, he really enjoyed it. So it was, it was fun to see. Yeah. If you can make it out, it'd be great. Well, thank you guys so much for listening and watching at home. Make sure you go check out all the links down below for Rob, uh, our sponsor, you know, Jordan's course and then all of the things we've talked about in this episode is going to be all linked down below. So thank you guys so much for listening and watching at home and remember no oil checks here. Peace.